You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. pick it up. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And then we're going to turn over to Acts 19. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost, or the number one, or the chief of all sinners. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I told you last week that Paul planted this church, and that this church in Ephesus is the only gospel presence in this entire city of hundreds of thousands of people, not only residents of the city, but the people who are flocking to the city to participate well, in all kinds of ungodliness. They'd heard about this wonder of the world called the Temple of Artemis. And they were going there to see it, to participate in all that it offered. And connected with this worship of Diana or Artemis was all kinds of sexual immorality. So this became a tourist destination for the entire region of Asia Minor. And Timothy is pastoring a church that is not easy to pastor. And Paul's going to write these two letters to not only encourage him, but to warn him and to exhort him to, to stand and to stay at his post. But so that we get a good understanding of what's going on in Ephesus, turn back to Acts 19. Now, we covered this text you know, over a year ago when we walked through the entire book of Acts, but it's worth revisiting because I think when you see and understand what, what Paul faced there during his time, it, it kind of puts into perspective what Timothy's dealing with. So if you could imagine, Paul has went into Ephesus. Now, he sees Ephesus as a great opportunity for the gospel and for a church to be planted there. You've got a port that comes in where people are coming by ship. You've got a major highway that is running through there. So therefore, Paul sees this as a great opportunity. But not only that, this great opportunity is going to come with a great cost because Ephesus is a city that is broken. There's all kinds of issues going on in Ephesus. And this is not going to be an easy place to establish a gospel presence and so Paul spends over two years there, and, and during the end of his stay there, as, as documented here in Acts 19, I want you to look at verse 23, because something happens here that, that, that's going to help us kind of frame what Paul is saying to Timothy in that first letter. He says, about that time, this is Luke recording what happened there, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, when we walk through the book of Acts, I told you that when we, when we see that phrase, the way, that's how Christians, what Christians were called in the early church. Uh, they, as they were following Jesus, they were described as people who follow the way, the way of Jesus. So when Luke records this, and, he, and, he's, and he's seeing what's going on in Ephesus, he says that there is a great disturbance that is kind of coming up, effervescing over the top of the cup in Ephesus, that there is something disturbing the culture. You know what was disturbing the culture in Ephesus? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, wherever the gospel goes, it's going to disrupt your life. The gospel, by its very nature, is going to mess up your world, but in a very, very good way. And guess what's happening in Ephesus? 
Paul, the voice of, a gospel, of the gospel there, is making disciples. He's reaching people for Christ. They begin to tell others about Christ, and they begin to tell others about Christ. And the next thing you know, there are large numbers of people who are putting their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 24. There was a man there named Demetrius, and he was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, and he brought no little business to the craftsmen. So now we have this other character who lives in Ephesus, and, and he has his livelihood, his income, is based off of the worship of a false goddess. And so what has happened here is all these people who are traveling into Ephesus, when they go to the temple and they worship this goddess, uh, they might want to take something home with them. They might want to take a little shrine, maybe a little small idol, a representation of Artemis home with them to worship at home, wherever they live. So there becomes this big business out of people making idols to Artemis and selling them to all the tourists and all the locals who are coming to worship. And it says here that they made a lot of wealth from this. So notice in verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, so I want you to get this picture. Now I'm going to take a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of license here, just to kind of paint a picture for you. So Demetrius calls together all these craftsmen. There's silversmiths there. There's probably carpenters there. And they all have their trade or their wealth connected to the worship of this goddess, Diana or Artemis. So it's kind of like a business meeting. They all come together. And I want you to imagine that, that on a whiteboard in the room, there is a, a chart, maybe a little graph chart there. And that graph chart shows the sales of, of idols over the last year. And man, they've been making good money. So you would see the trend on the chart going up, all right? Sales are good. Everybody's doing good. But wait a minute. Over the last several months, really over the last year, maybe year and a half, there has been a steep decline in the sale of idols to people. So we're going to have a business meeting. We're going to talk about, hey, what's wrong with our business model? What's going on? Why are our wallets being hit? What's going on out there in the community? I mean, the temple's still pretty busy. He says here, men, you know that, we, that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, get this, the business meeting they're having to talk about the decline in sales comes down to one individual, this guy named Paul. Guess what Paul's doing? Paul's spreading the gospel. And there are people putting their faith in Jesus, but they're not just saying they believe in Jesus. It is changing their life. Listen to what he says. He says, all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and almost all of Asia has turned away. People are turning away from idolatry, and they're turning away to something else, and therefore, less people are buying idols, less people are buying our, our wares, and our wallets are getting hit directly. What's the cause of this? This Paul, but more specifically, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the gospel is not just something we say. It's a change in our life. A change in how we live, a change in how we talk, a change in how we respond to others. And, and, and right here in Ephesus, the sales are going down. Uh, their, their investments are hurting. Their income is hurting because of one guy named Paul who's told somebody about Jesus, and that guy told somebody else about Jesus, and another family's come to Christ, and another young lady who's turned away from all this immorality and walked away from all of her idolatry. She's turned and heard the good news, and it has changed her life. Go back to 1 Timothy. The guys there in the business meeting, they go on to talk and say that um, people are turning from their idols. And not only that, that the, that the worship of Artemis or Diana is even threatened. That this thing continues, if it just trend continues, that, that it could be that, that Diana falls out of the culture. Well, make no mistake about it, that was Paul's aim. But you know what they do? They stir up a riot. And it almost gets out of control. As a matter of fact, it gets pretty scary as you read the rest of chapter 19. Here's, here's what I want you to see. That the gospel is that powerful. Do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to the problems in Robinson County? 
the addictions, the broken homes, broken marriages, wayward kids, wayward grandkids. My concern is that the American church has begun to think that we have to put our emphasis on something else. That if we're going to change the society, if we're going to make real change, lasting change in our community, they're beginning to look to other things, other vehicles other than the gospel to see that happen. And what we see in Ephesus is the same thing that we can see in Robinson County today. If we truly believe that the gospel has that kind of power, that somehow over 2,000 years it's somehow lessened in its impact. No, I think what's happened in a culture that we have now that's not much different than Ephesus, we have a culture now that is pursuing all things in opposition to God. Do you see that, right? You see every day that, that whatever, whatever the Bible says is right, they're saying is now wrong. And, and whatever we say is wrong, they're saying is right. The Bible said that this day would come. Folks, we are living in a day where evil is called good and good is called evil. We're right there. You don't have to speculate about it anymore. You don't have to dream about it somewhere out in the future. It is right here, right now, just as the Bible said that it would be. And as the society continues to live in complete, outright disobedience, the church must protect and proclaim this powerful gospel that can change a person from the inside out. And that's exactly why Paul is getting ready to speak these words to Timothy. And the way he's going to frame this is just mind-blowing. In studying this this week, I really, I really wrestled with, Paul, why are you saying this right now? Why is it that in the opening part of this letter, Paul is saying what he's saying, that, that certainly Timothy already knew this? Well, he wanted to be an encouragement to Timothy. But he also wanted to exhort Timothy to make sure that he stands by his post. You see, the culture can often influence the church more than the church influences the culture. It was no different for Timothy in his day, certainly no different today. So Paul is going to encourage Timothy, but he's also going to hold his feet to the fire about his calling, about the gospel. You see, Robinson County... We, we, we don't need social reform. We don't need more education. We don't need a stimulus check in our bank. Some of you are checking your accounts this morning, right? No, what's needed most is a powerful gospel because that's what changes a human being from the inside out. And if we depart from that any little bit, then we're living in disobedience to what Christ has called us to do, and we are minimizing the very thing that can change an entire community. Look at what Paul says here. Paul says here, verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord Savior, because he judged me faithful. Now don't read that and think, wow, man, Paul's kind of boastful there. Paul is, it sounds like Paul is saying to God, God, you saw how awesome I was. You saw how great I was. You saw what I brought to the table. And therefore, God pursued me and kind of brought me into a right relationship so that I could do what God had called me to do. That is not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying because he's going to unpack that a little bit. He's not saying that God looked at him and saw how great Paul was. It's exactly the opposite. Paul is saying, I am blown away that God would even use me the way he's used me. I'm blown away that, that God would use someone like me. Well, wait a minute. Well, who is Paul? A guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament? A guy who planted over 20 churches all through Asia Minor, all the way over into Macedonia, into the Roman Empire? Who is this guy? Well, who was he before? That's what he's going to get to next. Notice this. He says that the Christ Jesus is our Lord because He judged me faithful and He appointed me to His service. There was a work, a calling, something that Paul was supposed to accomplish. Remember I told you a few weeks ago when we were talking about heaven and hell that, that when you're saved, when you're born again, you're not just saved from hell, you're saved to a work. You're not, you're not just saved from God's wrath. Certainly that's part of it. But you are saved to something. That's why you're upright and breathing. That's why you're still here as a born-again believer. When you become born again, it's not just because you got your ticket to heaven. You've got a work to do. You've been saved to that work. Paul says, he appointed me to his service, verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. What does it mean 
to blaspheme? Well, it means to hurt people with your words. I'm talking about significant infliction of pain, but also to speak against God and the things of God. That this guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, planted churches, had an incredible impact. This guy was speaking against God. Now, here's the thing. When Paul was walking as a Jew, when Paul was the Jew of all Jews, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He had had all the training. He had had all the education. He was climbing the ladder to become the Pharisee of all Pharisees. Paul had the pedigree and he had the resume. If you could go back and ask Paul back there if he was blaspheming, he would absolutely say no. No, what he would say to you is those who are following Jesus are the ones that are blaspheming. But notice, all this time has passed, and Paul looks at his back life back there when he was a Jew, and he says, back there, I was speaking against God's people, and I was actually speaking against God. That is incredible. He says that he was a persecutor. He assaulted those who disagreed with him. Not only would he assault them, but he would kill. This guy was a murderer. He stood by and watched Stephen be stoned to death. But everything else we can hear about Paul's testimony, what we know about his life, there's no, no doubt in my mind that Paul actually directly engaged in taking the lives of those who were following Jesus. He was a violent, violent man. He says here that he was an insolent opponent. He mistreated others. He hated people. He had, it wasn't just like he just disliked Christianity. No, in his mind, how could a group of people follow a Jewish carpenter who claimed to be God and therefore blasphemed God, and his life was ended by the Romans by hanging between two thieves as a criminal himself? How in the world can anybody think that Jesus Christ was Messiah? So it's not like he just disagreed. He had hatred in his heart. Insolence angry. And then he says this. He says, I acted ignorantly. You know, you can have a whole lot of education. You can have several PhDs. You can have a lot of book knowledge and still be ignorant. As a matter of fact, down through my life as a, as a Christian, there's been times where I've got the opportunity to share the gospel with people who are highly educated people. I'm talking highly educated, far more than I am. But when it came to the simplicity of the gospel, when it came to this Jewish carpenter who was more than a carpenter, who carpenter who was the God-man, they absolutely cannot wrap their mind around it. And although they have all the knowledge of the world, when it came to the gospel, they were completely ignorant. Paul says, that's who I was. He said, I had all of this training in Judaism. I had all the pedigree. I had all the resume. I had all the bullet points that when you looked at it, you would say, this man is a religious man. And Paul says, in all of that religion, I was filled with hatred. I was taking people's lives. And I absolutely was filled with bitterness and rage. And he was zealous for his cause. And you know what Paul says? He says, I was ignorant. But right there after he says insolent opponent, notice that little three-letter word right there, but. He says, but I received mercy. You see, I got stuck right there. <laughs> I really did. As I, as I tried to dig into this text, I got to those words, and I got stuck right there. You know why I got stuck right there? Although my sins were different than Paul's, my sin still separated me from a holy God. And when I got to those words, and I'm thinking about all that Paul was before, and then Paul writes, but I received mercy. Folks, I cannot tell you what overwhelmed my soul in that moment to realize that I was separated from a holy God, and if it were not for God's mercy, and if it were not for God's grace, I would still be in that lost condition. I would still be broken. I would still be without peace. I would still be without hope. But if it were not for God's mercy. I want you to take a long look at those words and I want you to see yourself right there. I want you to see your sins. I want you to see where Christ has brought you from. Or maybe, maybe when you look at that, you see and you realize that you haven't received mercy. Maybe when you look at that, it's foreign to you. 
It's not to me. Because I was acting ignorantly. At age 16, man, I was disobedient. I was angry. I was arrogant. I was prideful. I was hard. My parents were having an awful time with me, and I was running headlong into sin. But if it were not for mercy, if it were not for grace, if it were not for God's love pursuing me, folks, I could feel pretty confident that I would not even be alive today. But I received mercy. And, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. That's what I needed. I had to have it. You see, Paul, it wasn't like God looked down from, at Paul, wow, there, there's, a, there's a great opportunity for us. No, Paul was a broken man. And he needed mercy. And he needed God's grace to overflow in Paul's life. It's like the sin that I had found myself in, the sin that you found yourself in, that it required an overflow of God's grace to forgive you. You know, the beauty of this is, is that if, if a guy like Paul, who was a murderer, filled with hate, pursuing God's people and blaspheming God, if that guy right there, if that guy can find mercy, so can you. You haven't gone too far. Whatever you've done, whatever issue you, you're, whatever you're participating in, whatever addiction you've got, whatever brokenness is in your life, you lay that next to Paul, and if you can come to the same conclusion that I come to, that if Paul's life has changed this much, that God's grace is powerful, it can find you where you are, and it can take you from who you are to who God wants you to be. Make no mistake about it. That you can receive the mercy too. You can experience this grace too. It's not just reserved for those who have themselves all together. Because you know what? None of us did. Your sins may have been different, but your sins separated you from God. And Paul says here, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to stand as your accuser. That will happen, by the way, if you reject Him. Jesus came to be your Savior. you got to get your arms around this, folks. You and your lost condition, you know what it's like to be condemned, right? You know what it's like to have those condemning voices coming from every direction. Even those who are closest to you, even trying to help you, condemn you. And we take that, and we take that mentality, and we bring it right to Jesus and say, Jesus is just another and a long line of people who are lining up to condemn me. No, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. But if you reject him, you will find out later that he will condemn you. But now, today, he's your Savior. He can be. He's mine, and He can be yours. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, full of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I was the number one sinner, the foremost, the chief. And he says, but I received mercy for this reason. Now listen closely to this. He said, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, that in me, as the foremost, or the number one sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says that not only was he saved and born again, and saved from God's wrath, and saved from God's punishment, but he was saved to a work, a service that God had called him to. You know what that service was? To be an example to the world that a lost, broken, sinful, murderous, hate-filled individual can come from darkness into light. And so it is with every person who's come to faith in Jesus. That you are an example of God's patience and His love and His mercy and His grace. He said, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the gospel is powerful. Now, why do you think he'd be saying that? Timothy knows Paul's background. Timothy knows Paul's testimony. Timothy is, is Paul's true child in the faith. No doubt. 
Paul had shared with Timothy. Timothy had heard Paul share his testimony. But why is it in the opening part of this letter that Paul immediately gets to his testimony? Because I'm going to tell you that Timothy is a pastor of one of the hardest churches in the entire empire to pastor because of the culture he was in. Maybe, maybe somewhere along the line, Timothy may have gotten to the point to go, wow, man, this community is so broken. Man, the, 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 the problems in Ephesus are so huge and so bad and so overwhelming. Will the gospel be enough? Will the gospel be enough to change what's going on in Ephesus? Paul would say to Timothy, Timothy, don't leave your post. Stay right where you are. But do not, do not think for a moment that the gospel has lost any of its power whatsoever. No matter how bad the culture gets, no matter how far off the rails it goes, and certainly this culture in Ephesus was off the rails, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you see what the gospel did in my life. You see what the good news did. You knew who I was before. You know who I am now. That gospel hasn't changed. That power has not changed. Don't go looking for anything else. Don't go listening to the culture and try to acquiesce to what the culture says you need to be doing. You stick by the gospel. If the gospel is powerful, then the gospel needs to be protected. Paul as the foremost sinner. Me as the foremost sinner. You as the foremost sinner. That contrast between who you were and who you are now, that is what speaks to your family, to your coworkers. That you were once this and now you're this. That you used to use foul, awful, ungodly language, but all of a sudden it seems like he's different or she's different. They used to be completely given to this thing but that doesn't seem like it's part of their life anymore. You see, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you remember the contrast, right? Who I was, who I am. I was set apart to show the world that God's grace is sufficient. Look at verse 18. Now verse 17, he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. And then verse 18, he says this, this charge. Now, we've already seen that phrase where Paul has said to Timothy, I'm going to charge you to do something, which means I'm going to pour some gas on some flames here. I want you to go do what you've been called to do. He says here, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, Paul reminds Timothy of something very important. We don't have a lot of background on this. If you go over to chapter 4, verse 14, we find out that Paul mentions there where there was a time that Timothy had people come around him and lay hands on him and pray for him. And it was during that time that they were laying hands on him, praying for him, that, that someone in the group began to prophesy about Timothy, about what work God was going to do through Timothy, to speak about what God was going to do through this young pastor. So, so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm going to charge you. I'm, I'm going to tell you you've got marching orders, but I want you to remember something. Remember the prophecies that were made about you. Remember when we laid hands on you and prayed for you. Remember to stand by your post. And if the, power, if the gospel is powerful enough to take a hate-filled murderer like me and give me brand new life out of God's grace, then if that gospel is that powerful, then that gospel must be protected. And he says here, wage the good warfare. Does that catch you? Does that get your attention? Paul says to a young pastor, Timothy, you're going to have to love your people. We're going to see that. You're going to have to shepherd your people. You're going to have to stand by doctrine. We'll see that. But in the opening part of the letter, he says to Timothy, Timothy, wage war. But wait a minute. That doesn't square well with what I know about Christianity. Christianity, we're supposed to be like, you know, so kind of easy, laid back, loving. And yes, we are to be loving. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes by, when it comes to protecting the gospel, if the gospel is what's going to change a life, then we better protect that. We better make sure we don't 
motivate off into something else and listen to our culture and therefore violate our conscience. We had better stick by the gospel if the gospel is what changes lives. Far too many are beginning to compromise here. He says, wage warfare. This is serious, Timothy. You've been put there for a reason. Don't abandon your call. Don't abandon your post. And do not abandon or water down or change the gospel. He says, wage warfare. Holding the faith and a good conscience. Timothy, you remain faithful. You remain faithful. Regardless of what your culture does, regardless of what happens in the world, regardless of what pains you have to deal with, regardless of the persecution, you remain faithful. But not only that, Timothy, remain in a good conscience. What does it mean to have a good conscience? Well, when you become born again, you come from death and the life. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that, that you were spiritually dead. And then when you put your faith in Jesus, you're brought to spiritual life. And it's at that point, God's Word begins to make sense. It's at that point that the world begins to make sense. You begin to see the world differently, that the world is actually broken. It's not because we have a bad social justice system or a bad legal system or a bad education system or we don't have enough money. You begin to see the world from a totally different perspective. And that perspective is, is that every human being is born broken, lost, evil beyond anything the heart can imagine. And then when you begin to see the world that way, then you begin to see the gospel as the antidote to the brokenness. And when you begin to see that, you get in God's Word, and the Holy Spirit who lives in you begins to awaken you to the reality of this world and God's creation. <laughs> well, you begin to develop a good conscience. A good conscience is that, that inner voice that says, that's wrong and that's right. As you lean into God's Word and as He begins to do that work in you, you begin to see that there are things in your life that you cannot go back to. That, that, that the gospel, the good news, the grace that found you is so beautiful and so important and the shame that it removed out of your life that you simply can't go back there. Your conscience won't let you go back there because you know what's back there. There's destruction back there. You can't do it. A good conscience. He says, Timothy, do not let the culture violate your conscience. Our culture is wanting us to violate our conscience. That which we know to be true. That which we know to be false. That which we know to be right and wrong. That we, that we understand a moral compass. There is a moral compass that says there are things that are right and things that are wrong. And our culture is saying, no, 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 you got it backwards. First of all, you've got to listen to us, and we'll tell you what is right and wrong. Which, by the way, changes every other day. Timothy, don't let your conscience be violated. You know what is right. You know what is wrong. Stick by it. Wage war. Fight. If the gospel is powerful enough to change Paul, then it is powerful enough, if it is powerful enough to change the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus... The power of the gospel has such an impact that people turn away from their idols. What would that look like in our culture? Drug, drug people, folks who are selling drugs on the street no longer have anyone to sell drugs to. Well, Pastor, you're crazy. Pastor, what are you talking about? There's always going to be people on drugs. Listen, if the gospel's powerful and it had people in Ephesus turn away from their idols and that gospel's power has not changed, then yes, I'm crazy enough to believe that pimps would have to quit their work and drug dealers would have to go find another job because there would be nobody to pimp out to or to sell drugs to. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm that crazy. If I thought it was any less than that, then I'd go back and do electrical work. <laughs> Paul says, let me give you an example, Timothy. He says, you hold, you hold your faith and you hold the line in your conscience. And he says that your son, by rejecting this, have made shipwreck of their faith. Do you know anybody who's shipwrecked their faith? I want you to think about them right now because no doubt you know somebody. Somebody that started strong. Somebody that seemed to have have it figured out and walk with Jesus only to have become unfaithful and violate their conscience. You know anybody like that? 
Yeah, Western Christianity is littered with them. Matter of fact, you could probably look around here. You probably look at your time here at High Park. You can probably look around. And you can say, "Yep, yeah, I remember that person." Things were going well, and then all of a sudden, their ship is wrecked on the beach, and there's nothing left. And now they're angry and they're bitter. They don't even mention the name of Jesus anymore. They don't ever open God's word. They don't ever. They don't ever pray. They don't ever talk about anything that is even close to godliness. Their conscience has been violated. They don't even know what right and wrong is anymore. You know anyone like that? Paul says, Timothy, you remember Amanius and Alexander. I, I would imagine that right here, Timothy, when he reads this, he's going like, oh, yeah, man, I remember that nightmare. Because apparently Paul had to deal with these two guys. These two guys began to move away from the gospel. They began to move towards blasphemy. They began to move towards things that undermine the church, cause division. They were actually blaspheming God. And they were in the church. And Paul says, remember those who shipwrecked their faith. Among them were Amenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Listen to the words here. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not blaspheme. Paul says we had to deal with that because what they were doing was causing all kinds of problems in the body of Christ. We don't know exactly what all that is. We don't know exactly what happened. All we know is that Paul had to deal with it. And they were turned over to Satan, which means they were put out of the fellowship. They were asked to leave the church. Paul said to them, it's time for you to go. What I see going on in American Christianity, and what is most concerning to me is, is that, that the gospel has become kind of like a life enhancement rather than life transformation. Let me explain that. You, you go to the gym to work out and to stay healthy. That's, that's a good thing. That's kind of a life enhancement. You take multivitamins to enhance your life, make you live longer, be healthy. You, uh, you do other things in your life as, as a life enhancement. You, you drink protein shakes, right? That's a life enhancement. Help me live better, feel better. I walk, I run, I exercise. Those are all life enhancements. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not something you tack onto your life to make you feel better about yourself. The gospel is not something that you wear or put on for a little while, maybe on Sunday, take it off on Monday to make sure that on Monday at work you're comfortable and it's Sunday you can fit in. The gospel is not something you add to your life. The gospel is something that transforms your life from the inside out. And if we ever make it anything else, it's not the gospel. It's not life enhancement. It's not just the practice of religion. If Christianity is nothing more than showing up on Sundays and just going through the motions, then you haven't found the good news that transforms. I'll give you a few things here to consider with Paul and what he's trying to communicate to Timothy. First thing I want you to see here is changed lives result in others' lives being changed. Change lives, change lives. Probably bad English there, but stick with me. Changed lives, change lives. See, it's not as much about what you say as it is how you live. The two together. Your profession of faith should be backed up by how you live. Paul says that his change was evident. The contrast between who he was and who he is. That was powerful. Timothy knew it. The Jews knew it. When, when Paul would learn about his background and, and go, you mean that guy was a murderer? That guy who's teaching and planning, that guy was filled with hate and now he, he's loving all cultures, all, Gentile and Jew alike? You see, you're an example, no matter what you're doing. You're all, every one of you in this room is an example. You're either a bad one or a good one. The fact is, if you're a bad one, somebody's paying attention. If you're a good one, somebody's paying attention. If you've been born again, changed by the gospel, then you've been called to live, walk, speak, love like Jesus. And as you do that, it contrasts not only with the world, but the way you used to live. 
There are people who made a profession of faith 30 years ago. They've been in Sunday school. They've served on committees. They, they've been part of the church for years as far as the organized church. But they are just as mean, hateful, vengeful, self-centered today as they were before they ever walked an aisle. And I want to offer to you that there is something desperately wrong with that scenario. If your life has not changed, maybe your life has not changed. If, if you're not different now than you were back then, then, then maybe you haven't experienced the same Jesus that I met because He radically messes up your life in a good way. If you're just as angry and bitter today as you were back there, it's time for a spiritual checkup. Something's wrong. Desperately wrong. Change lives lead to change lives. That's what happened in Ephesus. People giving up their idols. Hey, I didn't see you at the Temple of Diana today. Well, I'm, I'm not going there anymore. Why, why not? Everybody else is going there. Why aren't you going? I didn't see you engaging in the immorality that was going on. Yeah, there's a reason for that. It's because I found something better. I'm done with that life. Now I'm following Jesus. And I found forgiveness there. And I'm not just going to talk about that. I'm going to live that out by His power and by His grace. Secondly, if the power of the gospel changes lives, then we need to protect that power. We need to protect it. If you're in a military conflict, you've got countries warring against one another, one of the, one of the things that uh, your enemy will try to do is he wants to know where your weaknesses are, and he also wants to know what your strengths are. It's not just enough to know that you're weak over here in this one particular area of your, of your battle plan. He wants to know what your strengths are. So let's imagine that, that your strength is soldiers. You've got a lot of well-trained soldiers. If you're the enemy, you want to know that because you're going to try to, to change that. You're going to try to divide that power. You're going to try to, to overcome that with something else. Let's say that maybe your strength in a particular battle is tanks, Armored vehicles, well, you're going to come up with a solution to take away that strength. Guess what Satan is trying to do every single day in the life of the church and in the life of every disciple that is following him? He is attempting to water down the gospel, either in what you believe or how you live. That's his goal. If the gospel changes people's lives and the gospel brings more people into a right relationship with God by which they worship Him, that is the one thing Satan does not want to have happen. He wants to undermine your testimony. He wants to get you focused on your old life. He wants you to engage in your fleshly desires so that you undermine the very calling and the very reality of who you are. Makes sense, doesn't it? But from a church standpoint, he wants the church to not focus so much on the gospel. Well, maybe we could talk more about God's love and not God's wrath. Maybe we could talk more about heaven and not so much about hell. Maybe, maybe we don't need to focus so much on the Bible, and we could talk about some pop psychology, 10 steps to make you better, which is life enhancement, right? Maybe, maybe we should talk more about money and buildings and campuses. Maybe we should talk more about PhDs and doctoral degrees and master's degrees. Maybe we should talk more about... Social justice and handing out food. But at all costs, don't bring up Jesus. You can have a vacation Bible school. You can have a Sunday school. You can have it all. You can have all the programs you want, but if the gospel is void of it, if there's no gospel in it, you're not doing gospel work. That's how easy, how easy it is for us to just kind of drift off of what we're about. He says here, if that's, if that's the power that changes lives, then protect it. And protecting the gospel is just not about doctrinal integrity. Let me explain that. We want to make sure we stay pure in doctrine, teaching what the Bible says about the gospel. But also, I think we can see in what Paul is saying to Timothy, we must also be pure in how we're living out a gospel-centered life. That we, we can talk about the gospel, but yet live like it's had no impact in our life whatsoever. The two must go together. I'm not saying you got to live perfect. Nobody in this room is. But my goodness, we ought to be living each day to please Jesus our King. Doctrinal purity 
important. Your personal testimony, how you're living out the gospel, the only gospel that the majority of this community is ever going to see is the gospel you live out every day. They're not coming here. They're not. Even if you invite them, they don't want to come. So what's going to happen? You've got to be that gospel presence, how you speak to them, how you love them, how you, how you handle things when things go wrong. Do you flip out and lose your mind? Do you have an earthly perspective at the expense of a heavenly one? Are you, are you living in the moment? Are you living for eternity? How you live, the contrast between yourself and the rest of the world, yourself and who you used to be, the power of the gospel lived out, fleshed out in time and space. And then finally, we're going to change lives, change lives, and protect the power that changes those lives. Wage war. Wage war. Paul said that he had to ask these two individuals to leave the church. If we get into a circumstance or a situation to where making you happy is going to cause me to compromise the gospel, I will not compromise the gospel. If it comes down to you being a member of this church, yet you are undermining the gospel, undermining this community, trying to derail it, take it in a direction it's not meant to go, the gospel is more important than your membership at High Park Baptist Church. Let me take that a step further. If your pastor, me, if he begins to teach things that are not gospel-centered, if he begins to follow the community, God help me that that would not happen, but I'm a man just like you. I'm a human being just like you. But if your pastor begins to go in a direction towards the culture, and he begins to compromise the gospel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring him into this office. I want the deacons and the leadership to sit down with me and have a hard conversation with me. And if I do not repent, and I will not turn from that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to unanimously, quickly as you can, fire me and get me out of here. I want you to amen that. I want you to fire me and get me out of here. That is your responsibility, church. I protect this teaching of this church and in our small groups, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure this garbage doesn't creep in. But I'm going to tell you something. It's coming from all directions. But if your pastor goes off into that garbage, you get rid of him quickly and find you one that will keep it gospel-centered. I am responsible to this fellowship. And it doesn't matter about a paycheck or anything else. I am responsible to you. And if I start going off into heresy, get rid of me. Because I've lost my mind, apparently. Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 18, He said there, that if a brother or a sister offends you, you must go to them and you talk with them and you try to, try to work this out and, and help them to see the truth and help them to see the beauty of the gospel and, and see them come back into the community of faith. And, and if they reject you, then you, maybe you take some friends with you and you pray about it and, and you, you engage again and you talk about it. And if they reject that, then, then maybe some more people in the church need to get involved and, and you need to talk it through. But the whole goal, the whole point is to regain that brother or sister back into the fellowship. We, we call this or refer to this church discipline. But if that person continues to reject, you know what Jesus said? He said, you turn them out. You turn them out as though they're lost. There's no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul, having been a blasphemer himself, having experienced the grace of God and been redeemed, if Alexander and Hymenaeus had come to a place of repentance, that Paul would have restored them right back into the fellowship because that's how God's grace works. If, if Paul the blasphemer can be born again and find new life, then certainly Alexander, Hymenaeus, and any other person who's far away from Christ can be restored, can be healed, can be forgiven and be restored. But here's the crazy thing. We never hear about these guys at all. The only time we hear about them is about their blasphemy and that Paul had to put them out. So apparently, apparently they were not restored. If there's a conflict 
between you and the gospel with this church, make no mistake about it, we're going with the gospel. We'll be very clear about that. I love you enough to tell you the truth. The truth is that in today's head, there's going to be a lot of pressure on you individually and us corporately to violate our consciences. Can't do that. We won't do that. Because the gospel is the only antidote to all the disaster and nightmare that you're seeing out there. And if we ever believe it's anything else, then we're just as broken as what's out there. Father in heaven, you have called us to gospel ministry and gospel work. And Father, the gospel is powerful. And Father, may we never, ever, ever add to it or take away from it. That good news that found me, that grace and mercy that found me and forgave me, that power is still very much alive and very real today. But Father, as we prepare, not only for this time of commitment, that we would also begin preparing our hearts for partaking of the cup and the bread. Father, I pray that we would look inside ourselves. Is there a contrast between who we are today and who we once were? Or has the darkness of our old life crept in to our life today? Is there no discernible difference between our life today and our life back there? Is the gospel nothing more than religion and life enhancement where we can turn it on like a light switch, turn it on when we're here, turn it off as soon as we walk out the door? Are we just as angry and bitter and hate-filled and self-centered as we were before? Father, we beg you by the power of the Holy Spirit and His presence here in this place that you would do some hard work in the hearts and lives of people here and watching online. No doubt, Father, there's some that are still in darkness. There's some who, who thought that religion would be enough, but it's not. There's some who thought alcohol would be enough, but it's not. There are some who think that relationships with the opposite sex is enough, but it's not. It's some who are caught in homosexuality who thought that that would finally bring peace, but it has not. Only more pain and more destruction. And the good news is only good news if it takes us from darkness and brings us into light. And that is possible here this morning. Draw those which are far from you to yourself. And give them new life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 